Welcome to the Flight Deck, a Leading Edge podcast. I'm your host, Dave Allen. Today we are discussing the collective bargaining process under the Railway Labor Act. With me for this discussion is Strategic Preparedness and Strike Committee Chair David Smith. Hi, David. Good morning, Dave. Also joining us today is uh, United MEC Executive Administrator Quincy Fleming. Thanks for joining us, Quincy. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Dave, uh, tell us about a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I started work for United Airlines in April of 85, about uh, 38 years ago. And uh, obviously at that time, the Railway Labor Act process had exhausted itself here. And I came to work during a tumultuous time uh, at United. I was started as a uh, 727 flight engineer when I finally uh, was returned to work under court order. And... Uh, I uh, went from there and pretty much stayed in the Denver domicile, 7-6 first officer, 7-3 captain, 7-2 captain, and now I'm presently on the 787 out of Denver. I uh, live in Evergreen, Colorado with my lovely bride and our many animals and uh, enjoy a lot of outdoor activities that come with a Colorado uh, lifestyle. Okay, thanks. And Quincy, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I started off as a Navy pilot many, many years ago. I uh, was hired at United in uh, February of 2001 uh, and promptly furloughed a few months later. Uh, so I've been uh, back and forth uh, after two furloughs uh, back, and I'm uh, currently a San Francisco-based uh, 7 first officer. I live in Albuquerque, so I do commute. I'm married. I've been married for 20 years. I have two children uh, who are in eighth grade and a freshman in college. Quincy, many people have not heard of the position of executive administrator. Can you tell us your daily role uh, as an executive administrator? I have uh, a lot of different um, duties. Mostly I concentrate on relationships. Um, I'm always looking for uh, information of any kind, uh, as far as you know, not missing something, not missing um, something important. I help with strategizing and decision making, and uh, just making sure that we're not in an echo chamber. And I think mostly I, I act as a multiplier. I'm another person who can take on a task if things get really busy. So, but pretty much anything. <laughs> All right, David, can you tell us what the SPSC committee is? Yeah, the SPSC committee has been established in our policy manual to uh, be prepared with strategic planning and potential strike activities, or as we negotiate down the road, to uh, undertake the charge of the MEC and the master chair, which is who our committee directly works for, um, to ensure that we gain solidarity so the United Pilots are able to achieve what is rightfully theirs and their families. The SPSC itself is made up of basically three, uh, three contingents. One being the SPSC itself, and that I am chairman of with a vice chairman and a member. We also have the pilot to pilot, also known as, of course, P2P, which many of you have seen out there in their red shirts, uh, distributing information and various swag. Uh, as they help to educate the pilot group on ongoing activities. So you mentioned the pilot-to-pilot -pilot committee, and they go out in their red shirts, and recently they've been handing out uh, lanyards and bag tags, correct? Correct. What, what else do they do? 
Their objective is to provide the information to the pilots so that they and their families can make the best decisions going forward, and specifically meaning whether we're in times of negotiations or just in times of information. As we all know, information is king, and that is the direct conduit from the MEC to the pilot group. So when the pilot-to-pilot member is in the crew rooms, and he's sharing information, where is he getting that information from? The P2P uh, core, if you will, gathered their information from the MEC and from the officers so that is as clear and concise of a way to deliver that information to the pilot group without any sort of filter. So they gain their information from their charge from the MEC. How many P2P members do we have currently? Great question. Um, Obviously, the structure at the local level, the LEC level, is there's a chairman in each domicile, and then he or she has enough members there to adequately be able to cover the domicile. Larger the domicile, the more the members. Couldn't give you an exact answer because we're always looking for volunteers. We're always training, and we are definitely uh, in the mode of giving the information out. All right. And for those who are listening to this podcast, in the notes section, we will include the email address for P2P, for SPSC, and for also the Family Awareness Committee in case you have any questions and want to reach out to them. Uh, My first union position was P2P, and it was an amazing way to get involved. And so if you are a pilot who is sort of Wondering how you can help, if you think that you can offer skills, especially being able to talk to other pilots, I highly recommend you give this a shot. It's a great, great committee. I've also been a P2P member, and one of the things I loved about it is I got direct information in the form of talking points from the MEC officers. And so I felt like I was kind of in the loop, Uh, even though I'm not sitting at the table with the MEC. I felt in the loop, and I felt like I... Uh, kind of had the ear of of those people. So it is a great committee. Uh, the other committee you mentioned is the Family Awareness Committee. Uh, recently we had a Top Golf event. It seemed like it was a fairly successful event. Very successful. Um, we haven't uh, utilized that structure in the way that it uh, was originally developed back in the uh, pre-1985 strike days. The value of that committee is absolutely immense. And so the Top Golf event allowed us to build the new structure and embark on a new plan going forward. So my family and I went to it. We loved the event, uh, even though it was freezing cold in Salt Lake City. Um, in fact, my son won it for Salt Lake City, won the event for Salt Lake City. So that was that was kind of fun. And I felt like it was a good chance for like spouses to get a chance to talk to each other. Is that one of the goals of the committee? Absolutely. Uh, It was 11 degrees in Denver. I don't know if we had you beat or not. However, having said that, just to bring the families together and uh, uh, foster friendships in the common theme of our our workplace is absolutely valuable. Um, Made enough good friends where my wife is skiing with a brand new friend she made there uh, up in Winter Park. And It's just one of those things that allows you to come together as the family members to understand what the union is trying to do and where we're trying to go. 
So that was the first one of those events in recent memory. Um, are there? Can we expect to see more of those events going forward? Absolutely. Uh, the MEC is certainly committed toward that committee, and we have plans for many other smaller events at each and every domicile going forward. And you should expect the ability to engage your fellow families on a continuing basis from this point forward. My personal feeling about family awareness is um, that it is very helpful for me in particular with, with my husband who's not a pilot to have him around other airline people because, um, first of all, I, then I'm not the only crazy one. I think sometimes you just feel like you're trying to explain things that are going on at work and, and all of the really complicated things we deal with. And um, it just makes it so much easier for uh, me to explain my job to my family. And, and that helps them support me in a meaningful way. And they understand a lot of the challenges that I have at work. So it really does make a difference. I, I love family awareness and plan on participating in Albuquerque. David, we've talked about the committee as a whole, the SPSC committee, um, and its pieces, the pilot-to-pilot committee and the family awareness committee. How do you bring all those committees together? So it starts with the family and the family awareness piece of my committee. And we all know that uh, the true contract is negotiated at the kitchen table, not the negotiating table. So bringing that piece into it And then with P2P, with good, solid information to the pilots on top of that, and then overarching into the fact that the strategic part of the committee can bring all that together and create the solidarity that's required for us to go down the road of achieving an industry-leading collective bargaining agreement. Quincy, currently we're in negotiations. And I think many people don't understand that a contract does not expire. Can you talk us through that? One of the differences of the Railway Labor Act uh, from uh, the uh, other labor laws uh, in the United States is that it was designed to keep interstate commerce from stopping. So in other words, if somebody's contract expires in a normal workplace, they can immediately withhold services or whatever it is that they're trying to do to apply pressure. Um, in in the context of Railway Labor Act, uh, it, a contract doesn't ever expire. It simply becomes amendable. And then once that the contract becomes amendable, we're under a status quo um, obligation to continue to work under that contract until we can negotiate a new one. It's very simple. That's That's really the difference. And it's to keep transportation, which is vital to our economy, um, from, from being disrupted. Well, thanks, Quincy. You mentioned the Railway Labor Act. Dave, can you share a little bit of the history uh, regarding the coming about of the Railway Labor Act? I think one of the most important things for a pilot group or anyone who works under the RLA, the Railway Labor Act, to understand is exactly what you said, that there is a process And the history behind it, I think, has an immense value since it's what we work under. And to understand how it came about, came into being, and why it's there, and why we have to work under it, 
is worth further investigation. And it's easy to find, but ultimately understanding that this country decided in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that interstate commerce, as you said, needs to continue. And the railways, which were originally, of course, uh, brought under the act and were the target of the 1926 RLA uh, legislation, um, it came about due to a lot of uh, difficulties, you could politely say. Uh, it was a very violent time in this country, frankly, and we wanted to ensure that the country could continue to grow and prosper. And so in 1936, Captain Banky, and hopefully many of you know who he was, our original ALPA president, was able to get the airlines brought under the act. It was um, not exactly thought of as a complete win, but it was in that day for the pilots of this country. Quincy, can you explain the Section 6 process to us? It's a pretty involved process, but at the heart of it, it is just simply direct negotiation. It is two parties, management and the union, coming to terms for a new contract. That's all it really is. Um, we began the Section 6 process here by giving notice that we wanted to amend the terms of our previous collective bargaining agreements, which, of course, we're working under today. That occurred back in 2018. The formal process, if you will, uh, began on the amendable date of January 31st of 2019, and those direct negotiations have been ongoing since that point in time, obviously with the COVID uh, pandemic um, involved in that time frame as well. There's no end date of negotiation. It can go on pretty much indefinitely. That's actually a great segue because at some point, either the company or United Alpa is going to get sick of the process. They're going to get sick of this never-ending process. Um, what remedy do they have when, it, when they get to that point? The only legal remedy at that point um, is a process called mediation. And that's where uh, one of the parties, it could be management or it could be the union, requests for a third party mediator to come in. And I think a lot of people misunderstand what a mediator does, but you know they come in and they sort of just referee the process. And they check and see if everyone has been bargaining in good faith, where the parties are, are they close, are they far apart? And then based on that, and, and this is after an un, unknown waiting period, there are also no rules as far as timelines in mediation. Um, but at that point, the mediator is, is involved with the process. I think an important point of the mediation process is to understand that it's not like you just call the mediator in if you're still actively negotiating and making progress in those negotiations. Uh, it is a end game, if you will, for at least the Section 6 direct negotiating process. You mentioned, Quincy, that uh, the mediator then kind of becomes the referee. Uh, does that mean he controls the timeline? Does that mean he controls the process uh, once you've applied for mediation? I've done a lot of research on this, and it really seems to be almost anything that the mediator can do. The mediator can admonish the parties for their behavior. The mediator can table the whole thing and just put it at the bottom of, of his desk if he doesn't think 
that there's good faith negotiations going on. They um, can send everyone away to try and work something out. I mean, there's the basically the thing is that there's no set, there's no rule book, there's no playbook, and it it varies from mediator to mediator. And once you're in mediation, you to a certain extent, have lost control of the process. And that's both the company and the union. All right. So I do think there's some misconceptions out there about mediation, um, especially when it comes to getting an agreement. David, are we forced into an agreement when we're in mediation? No, by no means whatsoever. However, having said that, uh, I believe that uh, the NMB, the National Mediation Board, which is obviously spelled out in the RLA, uh, their objective is to get the parties to come to terms. Um, And in order to have that happen, just like in Section 6 negotiations, you have to have two willing parties. So uh, I would just say that uh, while that may be the objective, it is also a process where you don't have as much control uh, sitting there because now you have a third party who has that objective in mind and the other parties may not. And I'd like to add that there's no guarantee that a mediator is going to think something is fair the way a pilot might think something is fair. And that could also work the other way with, with management, but there's not a rule book that says, you know, we have to meet at 50% on everything at all. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know that um, the list of mediators currently consists of people who have been flight attendants in their past life, pilots in their past life, um, management people in their past life. So depending on who we get as a mediator, um, that may drive how how the discussions go as well. Is that correct, David? Yeah, the NMB assigns a, a staff mediator to the process overseen by the three members of the uh, NMB and the basic process being that uh, you wish for the best and you're trying to get somebody to achieve the objective, but you just don't know what you're going to get for sure. And there's a direct line here also as far as not knowing what you're going to get, but there are some things that you can do to put yourself in a better position. If you do, I am not advocating for going or against. All I'm saying is our previous behavior leading up to mediation will either set us in a good position or potentially put us in a bad position. And what I mean by that, and that is that goes for us, but it also goes for the company. There's documentation of poor behavior on, on management part that has been admonished by a mediator. So both parties go into it with sort of a history of how they've been behaving. And this is where I get a lot of questions. I hear a lot of questions that are to the tune of how can I help? Um, I would say definitely uh, putting us in a strong position no matter where we're going as far as our behavior and, and everything that um, that we can do to show our unity and our solidarity is going to help us in mediation. Absolutely, 100%. A disciplined pilot group is going to help us no matter where we go. All right, so that's really good information on the process, Quincy. Thank you. Uh, one question that we hear a lot uh, is in reference to the phrase status quo. Dave, what does status quo mean for us? Under Section 6, uh, disputes are defined as major or minor. 
and uh, minor disputes are generally resolved through the grievance process. Major disputes are when we would end up later on in this process. Um, the pilots during this process and the status quo uh, simply means that our behavior cannot cause the company economic harm to force leverage upon them. There are many other ways to create leverage. There's nothing wrong with leverage. It's highly encouraged. But those avenues of showing your displeasure are unacceptable and are noticed by the NMB and the entire RLA process. Does management have to follow the same rules when it comes to status quo? Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, again, my own sense of fairness, uh, this, this drives me crazy, but they're not really under the same burden that we are, mainly because there is about 30 years of case law where we have we have not been successful uh, in in court cases, and so that sets legal precedent um, for the company to be able to change status quo because they can always make a fairly reasonable argument that their change is for a, an economic purpose, in other words, to keep the business healthy and running, uh, even though we all know when we see, we know it when we see it, that, that there are changes in status quo during Section 6. We are forced to use the grievance procedure and take that, all of those violations um, on our contract against us all the way up to uh, possibly even a system board of uh, adjustment, um, which is essentially the end stage for a grievance that cannot be agreed upon. So that's our only recourse. It's not fair. But that's the reality. All right. So now we've talked about the mediation process where we have uh, our union and the company working through a mediator to come up with an agreement. David, you said the mediator can't really force an agreement upon us, uh, though they will use their leverage at some point to, to try and bring the parties together to an agreement. What happens if we reach a point where it's clear to the mediator that neither party is going to agree on a on a new contract? Uh, after that determination is made by the National Mediation Board, um, they would then proffer, which is the term used, uh, proffer arbitration in that case. And arbitration is where you would literally lose complete control of the process to a third party who will then determine what your contract's going to look like. So what are we going to say to that? Well, the fact is, is that uh, that offer of this uh, process of arbitration has to be agreed to mutually. It only takes one party to say, no, we're not interested in that for the next piece of the RLA to occur. Okay. And what would we say to that? What do you think uh, United, the United MEC's response to that would be? Yeah, the... Uh, process of arbitration, again, is one where you lose control of the process. And if, if you lose control of the process, you probably can't answer the members' needs and their desires of a collective bargaining agreement. So that's why rarely has the process ever been used. And it, it simply puts you on a path where you are, where a third party is going to determine your future. So if the United MEC does not accept a proffer of arbitration, what's the next step, David? Well, that step would be if they do not accept 
that arbitration is uh, we would then, a, once the NMB would determine that, uh, we'd be released into a 30-day countdown timer, also commonly known as a cooling-off period. And at the end of that period, many things can happen. What, what are some of the things that can happen at the end of that 30-day cooling-off period? Well, there can be convened a presidential emergency board, which then under the president's guidance looks at the contract. At the end of that process, uh, Congress can get involved and they can ultimately mandate what your contract is going to look like. Or we could be released to self-help. Correct. Hey, David, what are some ways that we can legally apply effective pressure on the company during this process? I think the most important outcome of that would be the show of solidarity amongst almost 16,000 pilots that we have. And that's manifested in ways like wearing a lanyard, bag tags, going to union meetings, talking to your reps, informational picketing events, uh, and most importantly of all is union volunteer work. Absolutely. In addition to that, we have, uh, actually we can use media advertising in a very effective way. It's not even that expensive in a lot of uh, cases. We do have a tremendous amount of interest uh, from the news media right now. Everyone's really interested in hearing what's going on. And that in and of itself is leverage because we can provide information to a public that frankly is fairly sympathetic to uh, a lot of things that... Um, that we are that are, is important to us uh, post COVID, a quality of work life and that sort of thing. We're seeing shifts that our own management is on the record, talking about shifts in um, travel patterns, and that's uh, driven by quality of work life. So people understand what we're after here. You know, and the point you hit on of of ultimately it's the family and SPSC has both uh, family awareness and those events. Participating in those would be absolutely one of the more important things one can do because your family is, again, uh, so involved with your career here at United Airlines and most importantly, your profession as an airline pilot. Thanks so much, Dave and Quincy. We can expect to see some of these family awareness events going forward, right? Correct. We are putting together a family awareness event or multiple at each and every of our domiciles and other places. Okay, please go out. Please attend these events. Get to know the people in your area and at your domicile. Also remember our nationwide picket on May 12th. You can find all the links we mentioned during the podcast in the show notes. Also, there will be links to information on the RLA in the notes. Thanks for listening to The Flight Deck, a Leading Edge podcast.